We hear a lot of people talk about being lonely. It's a problem in our country. Feeling all alone. I wonder though, have you ever have you ever been all alone in the middle of a whole crowd full of people? Maybe you're at the mall, maybe you're at a concert, maybe you're you're somewhere where there's a thousand or ten thousand or fifty thousand, there's all these people around and and you feel like you're all alone. And you go, What is wrong with me? You ever had that feeling before? I remember when I was a little guy, knee high, literally. We were walking out of church, and back then the church was Old Trinity Lutheran. It's a church on the pond. It's now the Seventh-day Adventist church. turns out that was the church that we first had a home at for a year. So that's kind of a cool circle story. I remember walking out of church out into the parking lot, and it was probably the biggest crowd of people that little me had ever been in before. Everybody walks down the steps, and they're all standing in that parking lot, and for all I was concerned, it could have been a thousand people. So I grabbed my dad's knee. Because, man, I was, I was not going to get lost in that crowd. I knew I was okay because I had a hold of my dad's knee. And the guys were all talking, and pretty soon my dad starts talking, and I went, well, that's not my dad. And the man looked about 14 feet tall. I mean, at that time, my dad was really tall. I got him by about an inch or two now, but back then I thought he was pretty tall. I looked up, and that man 14 feet up was not my father. I don't know that I'd ever felt more afraid or more alone in my whole life. And I looked just a few feet away, and there's my dad just smiling. He knew where I was. He wasn't going to let me get away. But for that moment, I felt all alone. I wasn't because my dad still had an eye on me. But I felt all alone, and I, I wonder. We've been talking about Jesus in the last hours of his life, and these are heavy, and they're, they're challenging messages because they're challenging verses. And I wonder how alone did Jesus feel hanging on that cross with a crowd full of people all around him? How alone must he have felt that last day of his life? If you've got your Bible, we're in John, the 19th chapter. We're going to start in the 23rd verse. We'll put them up on the screen. I would encourage you, if you've got your Bible, to read along. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. Crucified is the act of pounding the nails into Jesus' hands and into his feet. It is not him being dead, because he isn't dead yet. Their job in the crucifixion is to crucify Him, which is to hang Him on the cross. That's the beginning of the execution. Jesus has not died at this point. He's hanging from the cross, and as we've talked about, He's in excruciating pain. It's the middle of the day. He's in the desert sun. And He's hanging there all by Himself. And everything that we're about to read is within hearing and seeing of Jesus as He's on the cross. We're not able to imagine what was going on in His head. I can't begin to imagine what He must have been thinking about. We can't begin to imagine the excruciating pain He was in. But what would it be like to be the one that was hanging from the cross with the crowd all around? And how alone must He have felt? So as we go through these verses from John, what I'm going to do is in a couple of places, I'm going to add verses... Uh, that go along with it from the other Gospels that provide a few other details as we go. But we're going to continue looking primarily at the Gospel of John. So they divide his clothes into four parts, one part for each of them, and also his tunic. But the tunic, the Bible says, was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. The tunic was something that both men and women both were their own versions of. It was an undergarment. 
It was the first layer of clothing that someone would wear. And this piece of this verse is worthy of note because John makes sure that we understand that the tunic was seamless, that it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. John sets that out, and as you start reading and studying the Bible, you realize there are some things that seem like, wow, that's a little bit... I wonder why he did that. It's worth asking the question, why? It's worth digging until you find an answer, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. You know, yeah, it's true that a, a seamless garment of that or any other type would be a little bit more work. It would take more craftsmanship. It would maybe cost more money. It's possible that one of his followers, one of his disciples, men or women, had bought this for him because it was probably something outside of what he would ever pay for or have the means to pay for on his own. However, there's also at least one other person in Jerusalem that wore a one-piece tunic like this. And that gets to the deeper meaning that I think John wants us to get through. That other person was the high priest in the temple of Jerusalem. It tells us in the Old Testament what the garments are for the high priest. And it very clearly says that the tunic should be one piece and that it's seamless. That it's a linen piece of garlic, a garment, garlic, oops, a linen piece of garment that is without seam. It takes more time. It takes more care. Not everybody else is going to be able to have or afford one of those. Jesus, without anybody else knowing it around Him, without this ever being discussed in the New Testament, Jesus is wearing the undergarment of the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem. Never said anything. The Bible doesn't lift it out except for this one simple statement. Why does it matter? Hebrews 4.16 says this, Jesus is our great high priest. It wasn't until the moments before His death when His clothes were being gambled for that we even find this out that Jesus is wearing the tunic of a high priest. Verse 24, So they said to one another, the soldiers, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. These guys knew there was something special about it. They knew that a one-piece tunic wasn't something that everybody had. They didn't really care that it was a souvenir from Jesus. They didn't care who Jesus was. They just wanted their shot at this unusual piece of clothing. And so they're smart enough to agree that it's better to have a one in four chance of taking the whole thing home rather than to tear this seamless garment into four pieces and taking a part of it home. That's how we know that it wasn't just a souvenir. They wanted the piece of clothing for what it was. Quite frankly, they could care less about Jesus. He didn't mean anything to them. But this unique piece of clothing, they found that to be quite special. Talk about missing the point. goes on and it says, This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Casting lots is rolling dice. That prophecy is from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, And what it tells us is this. That Jesus' death wasn't an accident and it wasn't a, a set of circumstances that went south quickly. This is something that had been prophesied in the Bible for hundreds of years. In fact, in the 24 hours that were the last day of Jesus' life, He fulfilled at least 33 prophecies that He had no ability to decide the outcome of it all. And this is one of them. What does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus' death on the cross is a part of God's plan. So about that tunic, 
And understand, I don't mean to be too graphic here, and so I'm not going to be, but just think about this. The soldiers are there rolling dice to see who gets to take home what's left of Jesus' clothing, and the thing that gets noted is the tunic. So exactly what is it that Jesus is wearing as He's hanging on the cross? Got to deal with what the Bible actually tells us and what we know about Roman crucifixions. The fact is, somewhere between little and nothing, typically what the Romans would do is when they put the cross beam on a convicted man's shoulders to carry through town to the place that they would execute him, they would strip him naked to do it. And it would be a part of the humiliation, the part of breaking him down to nothing just prior to his death. The fact that Jesus has any clothing at all is quite a statement. Probably a direct result of an order from Pilate. So not only is Jesus fully conscious, as these men are below him rolling dice for his clothing. They're literally waiting for him to die. That's why they're there. They've done the work. Now what they have to do is just to make sure that their work did its job. After spending his whole life giving to people, doing for people, healing people and loving them, even bringing people back to life, Jesus is now hanging on a cross in the heat of the midday sun, bleeding profusely and suffocating under the weight of his own body, with these men rolling dice to see who gets to take home the last of his earthly possessions. That's all alone in the middle of a crowd. See, there's a reason that John included these details. The Christian church, not unlike the tunic that John talks about, has been knit together by God in one seamless piece not to be divided. Those soldiers who I can't imagine were particularly intelligent guys, you know, they knew enough not to tear a seamless piece of clothing into four pieces just to get a piece of it. They knew it was better to try for a shot at the hole than to tear it into pieces. And yet for 2,000 years, what we have done as Christians is we have divided and split and fought over the church, named for Jesus out of our own selfish arrogance and despite the Word of God that tells us otherwise. I looked up this week trying to find out how many different divisions, denominations, schisms have there been in the Christian church. How many are there today? The number I got was somewhere between 33,000 and 50,000. Those soldiers knew not to divide the tunic into four pieces and look what we've done to His church. Now we sit back and we see that there are some churches that are actually changing the very Word of God to fit the beliefs that they want to have rather than honoring God's Word as unchanging. And those soldiers knew not to tear the tunic into pieces. And yet look at what we do to the church. Verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene been a lot of discussion about whether this is three or four women, but if you read the commas and you go back to the original language, it's three women, described a bit differently, each of them. All three of them named Mary. Finally, somebody who cares. Finally, there are people who have supported and cared for Him all along that are the ones that remain with the exception of one disciple. Can you imagine Jesus' discouragement? To invest three years of your life in these people, especially the twelve disciples, and to have this whole crowd full of people that gather just to see the spectacle of your death. 
Because that's what they were there for, was to watch Him die. And the only ones that stood by Him, that kept Him from being completely all alone, were the three Marys and one unnamed disciple. makes me wonder about you and I today. It makes me wonder about me today. Maybe it will give you pause to wonder about yourself too. Do you love Jesus because of what He might do for you? Or do you love Jesus because of who He is? Do you love Jesus because He might be the only hope that you've got to get out of a pickle that you find yourself in? Or do you love Jesus because He is the Son of God who is your Savior? I heard a message a little over a year ago, and, and the guy was preaching about how he prays. And he said, I always used to pray asking God for stuff and tell Him everything He needed to change and what I wanted Him to take away from me and all that. And I'm going, yeah, I can relate to that. And then he said, but you know what? I start my prayers now and I just say, God, thank You for who You are. And it's changed how I pray. You've heard me from up here. It has changed how I pray. That at the beginning and at the end, what I'm really grateful for is that God is. I don't have to question that. I don't have to wonder about it. In the midst of all the chaos, much of which I create for myself, I know that God is unchanging yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I wonder about Jesus that day, wondering where were all those people that said that they loved Him? Apparently what was left was four who loved Him for who He was, not for what He could do for them. There was four. And what about you and I? Do you love Jesus for who He is, or do you call on the name of Jesus only to beg Him to do what you want Him to do for you? Verse 26, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. There's an awful lot of confusion around this statement. And uh, part of it is, who is this disciple that Jesus loved? It's a man, we know that. And why would Jesus say this? Well, here's why. Jesus' life is about to end. His mother is about to be left alone with no one to care for her. As Jesus is dying on the cross, one of His very last thoughts is to make sure that His mother is cared for, lest she become a widow and a, and a woman who has no one else around to take care of her, Jesus says, this is your son. There's someone who will look out for his mom. So the question is, who's the disciple that Jesus loved? It's a man, we know that. Some people have suggested that it was John, the author of the Gospel himself. Maybe he's just using a term that kind of is a little bit more humbling. Possible, but eh, I'm not so sure I buy that one. Some people have said Joseph of Arimathea, who makes an appearance in a little while and asks Pilate, to have Jesus' body so that it can be properly buried. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. Some say the wealthiest man in Jerusalem. It might have been him. I wonder, however, if it hadn't been another guy that we met a little bit earlier. The man for whom when Jesus finally made it to where he was laid, Jesus wept when he realized that he had died. Lazarus. That's the, the most emotion in terms of sadness that we see from Jesus, those simple two words, Jesus wept, and He wept, not just over the sadness of the sisters, but because He cared about Lazarus Himself. And what's interesting is Lazarus is last named in the 12th chapter of the book of John. And from there, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, see, I learned two years ago not to say Lazarus with, Lazarus 
with braces on, and I'm still trying. Excuse me. Lazarus. <laughs> when Lazarus was wa- raised... Now, look at me. Oh, my goodness. When Lazarus was raised from the grave, we never hear about him again. He's raised to new life, but we never hear anything. But in the 13th chapter of John, you know what happens? We hear the first reference to the beloved disciple. It's the first time we hear about him, and I wonder if the beloved disciple isn't the one who Jesus raised from the grave that we know as Lazarus, who was there with those women who cared so much for Jesus and was the last man to actually be near Jesus at His death. I think the beloved disciple was very likely Lazarus. So verse 27, He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And for that, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. What Jesus is doing is giving us a model of who we are to be in the church. We're to care for each other. That's why we've got an entire pastoral position designed to helping make sure that we know how to care for each other. Jesus wants to make sure that His mother is cared for. That's why you hear me refer to our church as family because that's how Jesus wants us to see each other as family. Verse 28 after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. So just imagine after the day that Jesus has had, the Bible doesn't say anything about Him getting a chance to eat or drink anything. You better believe He's thirsty. He's now hanging from a cross. He's severely dehydrated. He's thirsty. He says, I thirst. Two simple words, but what the other Gospels tell us is this is also the point that Jesus looks down at the people below Him, the soldiers and and the disciples who have scattered and everyone else who is mocking and jeering and making fun of Him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's concerned about His mother, and He's concerned about those people who are not concerned about Him in the least. Verse 29, So a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. Jesus is dying on the cross. Can't imagine how dehydrated and thirsty He was. And you know what they offer Him? Rotten vinegar. That's what He got was rotten vinegar. Rotten vinegar that had been sitting out in the heat of the desert sun. Thanks for nothing. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. It's an important thing that's going on there because... The night before, Jesus had been in the garden praying. And remember what He said? He said, Father, if, it, if it's Your will, if there's another way to take this cup from Me, do that, but not My will, but Yours. Jesus is clearly well aware of what's going to happen to Him over the course of the next few hours. And He said, God, if there's another way that You can accomplish Your purpose without Me having to go through this, I would appreciate that. But you know what, God? If this is the only way, then I'm going to do it. He's the one who uses the cup. The cup of suffering. The cup of death. The responsibility, the necessity of His death on the cross for us. So this cup that He's offered, this sponge full of rotten vinegar, is symbolic for how Jesus, 
who the Bible says did drink it, took this cup as a sign of completing God's will for his life on earth. That cup of suffering had run its full course all the way to Jesus' death. Jesus willingly drank from that cup the night before and said, God, if it's your will, I'll do it. And then when he said he was thirsty, rather than offering them anything that would help, they offered him rotten vinegar. And then he took that, knowing the only thing in the bottom of that cup was his own death. Jesus literally has been the obedient son all the way to his death. It's as though God realizes at this point that Jesus has suffered enough. Soon the soldier's spear will go into his side to prove that their work was done. And the Bible says that Jesus gave up his spirit after he bowed his head in submission. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Most of people, I would think, if you're going to die, you're going to die and then your head's going to fall. Jesus didn't bow his head because he was tired. Jesus bowed his head in submission. Not my will, God, but yours. He gave up his life for the purpose for which he had been born, and that was to save your soul. Why are we going through all of this stuff that's so difficult? Because if you don't hear anything here ever, if this is the only Sunday that you ever come here, you need to hear that Jesus loved you so much, even as you are a sinner, that He gave His life that you could be saved. And so He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. The other Gospels say this is when the darkness fell over the whole land. It was not an eclipse because it lasted three hours. Some of them tell us that Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. What does that mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boy, do we get wrapped up over that. It's a tough one. Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus had become sin. He had become our sin. Remember last week, the one that hangs from a cross is cursed by God. Jesus knew He was forsaken, not because of anything He'd ever done, but because He was separated from God for our sins. The Father never stopped loving the Son, but for the first time in His life, His communion, His connection to the Father had been broken because Jesus became our sin. It's not like the kid that gets lost in the crowd crying out, where are you? I've got to imagine that if we understood Aramaic, it would be a little bit more like, Dad, where did you go? Did Jesus cry out? You bet He did. In the 33 years of his life, he'd never experienced a separation from God his Father. And we are the ones that did it, our sin. And this morning we shared Holy Communion together, a physical, tangible reminder that the the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth is still with us today. That his love for us continues even when our sin separates us from him. We're reminded that just the way the Romans reached out His arms on a cross to see that He hung to His death, Jesus reaches out to us even in our sin. Why? So that our sins could be forgiven and that we could know life in its fullest through Him. I know these messages have been heavy. I know they're hard to listen to. 
But let me assure you of this. As much as I don't understand, I know this. The last couple of weeks, next Sunday to come, they're nothing compared to what Jesus went through. And I heard a sermon one time. really made me think about it. And I absolutely believe that this pastor was right. He said, if after that day of Jesus' death on the cross, the only person ever to be born would have been you, he would have done it. He would have died for you and for you alone. You need to understand that you're loved that much. That while you were still a sinner, God loved you and Jesus gave His life for you. You you can listen to what it is that He went through for us and we can make a small attempt to grasp the pain that He went through and, and how horrible it might have been. But here's the thing. If you don't accept Him as your Savior, then for you in your life, Everything that He did is in vain. Don't choose to let Jesus' death on the cross for your sins mean nothing to you. While it may have paid the price for the person next to you for their sins, and they know that their eternity is secure, if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, Jesus' death right now means nothing for you. Why are we going through all this so that Resurrection Sunday is truly a celebration? Jesus died so that you could live. So what do you do? All all that we ask around here is what the Bible says. They put your faith and hope and trust and you believe in Him. All we have to do is love Him in return because He first loved us. How do we know that? Because He willingly drank from that cup and went to the cross because you and I are sinners. The Son of God who lived a perfectly sinless life died on the cross for your sins and my sins so that we would not have to die in them. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that kind of love? What are you going to do with that Jesus? Let's pray. God, there's no way that we can understand what Jesus truly went through. There just isn't. But God, we can attempt to read about it, to understand it, in some way to come to terms with it in a way that we will never be able to fully come to terms with it. But God, You never ask us to understand completely. What You ask us to do is to trust and to believe. And so God, this morning for all of those of us who are gathered here who do not yet trust, who do not yet believe, God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would press in on them. That Your Holy Spirit would convict us of our sins that we recognize our need for forgiveness in the Savior. God, we do thank You for who You are. But we also thank You for what You did for us in Jesus. Because He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. So you hear all these messages and, you know, if I was you, I'd be saying, okay, so what am I supposed to do now? How do we be the church? How do do I be a Christian with all this? Where where do I go with all this information? Here's the deal. You know, Pilate knew the right thing. Pilate had all the right words and Pilate failed to do the right thing. You know what? You know the right thing. You know the right thing to do and so all we need to do is to do it. That, That great saying, the only thing that is needed for evil to persist is for good men to do nothing. Don't be a Christian who does nothing. 
And here's what I've got to say to you. If Resurrection Sunday for you is really just Easter, and I say just Easter, because all that means is it's springtime. That's all. That's all it's all about. There's a, there's a lot more history there, and we're not even going to get into it. But if it's nothing more than Easter eggs and bunnies and, and a big meal with family and friends, you know what? My suggestion to you is run. Don't walk, but run to the four corners to our prayer team so that they can talk to you about how it is that Jesus can be your Savior. And so that when we get to Resurrection Sunday this year, you really have something to celebrate. And when I say run, I really mean run. Why? Because time is short. You don't even know what you're going to have tomorrow. What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to recognize Jesus for who He is. To submit your life to Him and say, Jesus, thank You for doing for me what You did. He didn't have to. He chose to. And all that He wants us to do is to believe. Prayer folks will be in the corners after the church. They would love to visit with you. They'd love to pray with you. And they would love to pray with you as you give your life to Jesus. That would be an awesome thing for both of you.